And once again, good morning. Can I have you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, Chapter 1. If you're new with us, we have recently started a study through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are currently working our way through John's introduction, which covers the first 18 verses. Now, in these 18 verses, John is giving us a crash a crash course on Christology, which is a study on the nature and person of Christ. Once again, John desperately wants his readers to have eternal life, which he knows can only come by believing in Christ, but which Christ? You see, even in the Apostle John's day, there had already come numerous people claiming to be the Christ sent by God. The word Christ is just a Greek word that the Hebrew is Messiah. Uh, there's a lot of would-be messiahs that had already come on the scene, a lot of false Christs, and these uh, people had led many astray. Therefore, uh, our understanding of the true Christ becomes critical if we're going to receive eternal life through him. And so with that in mind, John opens his gospel by giving us seven attributes. Now, I've reworked my outline. I, I used to say it was eight, but now it's seven. Uh, John opens his gospel by giving us seven attributes or distinguishing marks of the true Christ. So no one would mistake an imposter for the true Messiah, the true Christ of God. Now, we've worked our way through the first four of John's outline on, the Christ, on Christology. So I'll just read them to you. The uh, eternal preexistence of Jesus Christ, beginning in verse A and then verse 2. Excuse me. Beginning of verse 1. I've got 1A in my notes. Uh, the, pre, the eternal preexistence of Jesus Christ, beginning of verse 1 and then verse 2. The equality of Christ with God, middle of verse 1. The oneness of Christ with God, end of verse 1. The omnipotence of Christ, verse 3. Omnipotence means all-powerful, demonstrated in the fact that Jesus made all things. And now last week, guys, we started to look at the fifth lesson that John presents in his mini-course on Christology, uh, something I'm calling now the life and light of Christ. Let's just begin with verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the, tr and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9. That was the true light, Jesus Christ, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, in the Greek, light and life are inseparably connected, so much so that many commentators say that they're actually the same thing. And they say that because the construction for the life was the light in verse 4 is the same construction in the Greek as uh, the word was God in verse 1. And so that's why they say, well, it's really one and the same. And really what John is doing is he's communicating that life and light are both an expression of the divine nature. And yet, even though they, are both, they both reside in God's nature and are therefore one in him, listen, they're still distinct from each other. idea of life and light, they may be like flip sides of the same coin, but they are different. Just like in verse 1 it says that the word and God are the same, well, but they're still different though. Jesus and the Father are still the same God, but they are separate, distinct uh, persons, all right? 
So I just wanted to let you understand that, that I understand where the commentators are coming from. But we want to separate those concepts and look at them a little more closely individually. Last week, we looked at the concept of life. In him, Jesus Christ, was life, beginning at verse 4. And as we said last week, we're, we're reviewing just a little bit. When John says in verse 4, in him was life, he's not talking about physical life. He already covered that in verse 3. We know from verse 3, Jesus Christ created all physical life, all right? But that's not what John is referring to right now. The Greek word used in verse 4, in him was life. The word for life there is zoe, and it's a word that was used to represent spiritual or eternal life. Guys, the thing that makes eternal zoe life so wonderful and so appealing is not its quantity, in the sense that it's never-ending, but its quality. The idea is richness and fullness. Look, eternal life wouldn't be appealing if it simply meant life stretched out into eternity. If that life was painful, hopeless, and empty, I mean, people in hell are going to live forever, but that's not going to be a blessing. Just to say, well, eternal life, it's a long, long time, that's what makes it a blessing. No, not necessarily. If that life would be painful and empty and hopeless, and etc., the thing that makes the life that Jesus came to give us so wonderful, and the Greek again is zoe. Zoe is life in all of its fullness. Life to the max, okay? I mean, look, even right now in this fallen world, we can experience life physically. The Greek word for physical life is bios. We get a word biology from that word. But even in this life, all right, uh, where we are fallen creatures, even in this life, we can know life in, in terms of it could be wonderful at times. In our times when maybe you are just overwhelmed by the goodness of God. I mean, everything is going well. Everyone you love is healthy. You're surrounded by all the people that you, you know, are love most in this life, and you're just being blessed. And you, you, you look at your life and go, wow, life is really good. This is really a blessing to be alive. And yet, life is not always good, right? Because even as good as it can be at times, it still has the potential to be bad. Someone can get sick. Uh, someone you love could die, all right? Imagine Zoe life as life to its fullest without any of the negatives that we now call life in the sense that we know it, all right? Imagine a life where there is only the presence of the positives multiplied millions of times over in heaven and absolutely no negatives. In fact, John sums it up in Revelation 24, 21, verse 4. He says, when we finally get to heaven, God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more pain, nor suffering, nor death, etc. It will be an existence absolutely void of anything negative. And it's hard to imagine that, isn't it? And yet that is the life that Jesus has promised us. It starts the moment we receive him as Lord and Savior. And eventually we are going to be uh, taken to be with him, receive our new bodies. And that's when it's going to really begin as we are, uh, rapture happens and we are uh, instantly brought into his presence. We see him face to face. Our body has been glorified. I mean, it's hard to imagine what this is gonna, existence would be like once we are taken to be with him. But um, 
Again, verse 4 says, in him was life. And guys, that doesn't mean that in him was life at one time, past tense, but no more. No, the Greek is actually saying that this life in Christ, in God, this life has and always will reside in him from and for all eternity. It's what the theologians call a seity. A seity, that God is self-existent. The word actually means existence that has no source other than itself. In other words, no one gave God life, okay? He wasn't born or created through any outside source. No one imparted life to him. He is eternal, which means he had no beginning. And so he is self-existent, and as such, this is what John wants to communicate to us, as such, he has always possessed life within himself. Now John says that this is also true of the Son who, when incarnated into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, the Father granted this life to be in him also. John 5.26, Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Guys, this life resides in Jesus, who very much wants to impart it to anyone who will believe in him. That's why he came to the earth, to die that we might have life. He wants everyone on this planet to have the life that he came to give. And guys, that's where light comes in. We talk about life and light. Yes, they are connected, very much so, but they are different, okay? Jesus has life in himself, has come to the earth to give that life to others. How? Well, that's where the light comes in. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light. Let me stop there. The life that is in Christ shines forth in this world as light. Turn to John 8. You know, Jesus talked quite a bit about this light. John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, listen, but have the light of life. So they are connected, right? John 9, verse 5. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. All right. But what exactly is this light that characterizes Jesus' life? Well, first of all, if we look at scriptures on the subject in the New Testament, I'm thinking primarily... First of all, we would have to conclude when Jesus, it says that he is light, we would have to conclude that in part it's talking about the nature of God shining through him. You don't have to turn there, but in John 14, 9, Jesus said to, in the upper room, remember Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, have I not been with you so long that you ask me, show you the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I and the Father are one. John 10, verse 30, he says, uh, says that. Also, John's going to conclude his introduction in chapter 1, verse 18, with these words, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, 
He has declared or made him manifest or, in other words, God has shown forth through the Son. Here's something you need to understand. The Jewish people had got kind of a warped concept of God over the centuries. Not that it was God's fault. Even in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to be a loving, merciful, gracious God. The problem was Israel so often disobeyed God's commandments that they saw the justice and the righteousness and the um, judgment of God. When you see that enough, you begin to think that's all God is. Okay? And they began to think that, well, God was a wrathful, vengeful God, very hard to get close. You didn't really get close to a God like that. You feared him, you cowered uh, in his presence, but it was hard to warm up to a God that you thought was always trying to wipe you out. Right? That's the concept they got of God. When Jesus came to this world, yes, he came to die for our sins, but also he came to set the record straight with regard to the character of God. He wanted them to know that, look, the concept of God that you've gotten over the centuries is not really who he is. Yes, he's, he's righteous. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he has to punish sin. But he is a loving, merciful, gracious God. And this is the, the side of his character he wants to constantly show you and will show you, I'm paraphrasing now, if you receive me, because in me, in the eyes of God, you will be perfect, sinless. And therefore, you will only see the mercy and the kindness and the love and so on of God. So, yes, part of what it means when it says Jesus is light, he was showing that by demonstrating that by showing the world what God's nature was really like. But in the context that we're looking at in John 1, where it's talking about Jesus as life, imparting his life to others, listen, he does so by shining God's light upon them. And that's basically what John is saying in verse 4, when he said, in him was life, and the life was the, listen, light of men. By saying that, he's talking about spiritual light, God's truth, or the gospel. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. And in verse 4, you can read the whole context on your own, but Paul is talking about how Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Well, Satan doesn't want people getting saved, all right? He doesn't want God's light shining in their heart. So he does whatever he can to block that light. But Paul says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest, listen, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So we're talking about truth, but using it in terms of light, okay? In John 12, if you would turn there. We'll read verse 46 first and then verse 36. In John 12, verse 46, we'd read, Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me, and there he's connecting light with faith, or in other words, the gospel with believing, 
that whoever that uh, he said um, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness and the greek word for abide is to remain god does not want people to remain in darkness he came to give them light jesus did whoever believes in me will not abide in darkness verse 36 while you have the light believe in the light talking about believing in christ believing in the gospel that you may become sons of light. Guys, the phrase, the life was the light of men, is translated in the NLT, the New Living Translation, this way. His life brought light to everyone. His life brought light to everyone. In other words, the idea behind Jesus being the light of men is that, listen, he came into a world of spiritual darkness to light fallen man's way back to God. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 33. This is not a new concept. <laughs> the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Not the first one in the cover, because Moses wrote Genesis, which goes back before Job in history, talking about the original creation. But Genesis was written by Moses about 1500 B.C., uh, theologians believe Job was written about 2500 B.C. So it's the first book ever written that made its way into the Bible. I love what it says here in Job 33. We'll just pick it up in verse 29. It says, Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times with a man, listen, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of of life. This is something that God has wanted for man from the very first time man sinned in the garden and plunged himself and the whole creation into darkness. In Genesis 3:15 God made a promise that someday he would send a redeemer. We know him as Jesus and also now as the light of the world, the light of the world. It was God's, always God's heart desire to deliver fallen men out of the pit and to bring them into his family, the family of God, uh, by enlightening them to the truth, which he calls the light of life. Of course, uh, Satan didn't want fallen man's path lit so that he or she could find their way back to God. So he has opposed the light. He is opposed from the very beginning. Yet John went on to say in chapter 1, verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Greek word means overcome. Some of your translations say understand. It could mean that, but the only other place the Greek word is used is John 12. And it's talking about don't let the devil overcome you. The idea is here that, you know, that... The, the devil, by getting Adam and Eve to sin, brought darkness into the world, spiritual and moral darkness. And Jesus came to bring light. In other words, the truth of God to set men and women free, to bring them to God, right? Here John introduces us to the classic battle between light and darkness. In scriptures, light and darkness are used quite often as metaphors. Light is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual truth, Holiness, moral purity, and obedience toward God. 
Darkness is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual error, evil, moral impurity, and rebellion against God. Furthermore, in the Bible, God himself is called light. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And conversely, the devil is called the power or the personification of darkness. And guys, the conflict between light and darkness is as old as mankind. But listen to me. John isn't saying that this battle between light and darkness is uh, being conducted by two co-equals. All right? There are those who are philosophical dualists, and they bring this to the Bible. And they paint a picture from the Bible that you have the struggle between light and darkness. Two powers that are basically equal, struggling for supremacy. Eh, absolutely wrong. God is light. The devil is darkness. God is the creator. Lucifer was the creation. And God is always stronger than Satan. Well, then what is the, why did he let him continue? To give you and I a, a choice. We are free moral agents created with a free will. You can't exercise free will if you don't have a choice. That's why God allows Satan to continue. He is serving the purposes of God in that he gives man a choice. And of course, God wants us to choose him, life. But the idea is that light is always more powerful than darkness. Just think of the metaphors themselves, right? Light is always more powerful than darkness. You walk into a dark room, how do you get rid of the darkness? Do you karate chop the darkness and you're kicking the trying to drive it out? You just turn on the light and the darkness goes. This is the point, all right? Now here. When John talks about darkness and that God at one point introduced light into it, doesn't it remind us of the original creation uh, in Genesis chapter 1? Let me read it to you. I won't read all of the first three verses. I'll read some parts of them. But Genesis 1, starting with verse 1, says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and darkness, of course, speaking of physical darkness, was on the face of the deep, then God said, let there be light. And again, talking about physical light. And we read, and there was light. Just as God brought physical light into the first creation to light man's way in the earth, so he brought forth Jesus, listen, to be the spiritual light in a world of spiritual and moral darkness to light fallen man's way back to God. You know, you have to turn there, but James mentions the original creation of the physical universe in chapter 1 of his epistle and then uses it to tell us that, that God eventually spoke another creation into existence. James 1 verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. He's picking up on, first of all, the original creation, how God brought forth everything in the original creation by the word of his power. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be this land, and so on. Uh, God spoke the original creation into existence, and James picks up on that and says, and yes, he spoke the original creation into existence, but he also spoke another creation into existence by the word of truth. Just as God brought forth the original creation by his word, James and John really are telling us he used 
His word, again, this, the word being Jesus Christ, to bring forth a new creation. And guys, this new creation doesn't deal with planets, at least not yet. At one point, God is going to wipe out the original creation completely because it's been corrupted by sin. He's going to create a new heavens, new universe, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, where we're all going to live. So eventually, the new creation will involve the old creation replacing it. But right now, this new creation doesn't deal with planets. It deals with people. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Of course, you know this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means saved, born again, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Yes, that means spiritually uh, we have a new life. Uh, and really, the old life, we're still dealing with the old life. Th someday that will be completely replaced, again, with a totally new creation. to get a new body, live in a new environment, and so on. But we are right now new creations. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts... To give the light of the knowledge, the light of the knowledge would be, again, a reference to the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul is using, just like James does, Paul is using the language of the original creation, how God commanded light to shine out of darkness and says he did the same thing with us who are his new creations. We were born into darkness. It was in us and we were a part of it. And yet God at one time shed his light on us. We received the gospel and, and all. And we became new creations. No longer children of darkness. Now sons and daughters of light. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So guys, Jesus is the, is the, personific Jesus is the personification of God's truth. As we're talking about truth in terms of light. That has come into a fallen world of darkness. To give to every person light that they might find their way to God and become a new creation in him, in Christ. Again, John chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking, this comes after uh, how John introduces us to John the Baptist, which we'll look at last week. And uh, he says, look, uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. Uh, he came to bear witness of the light. He, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 9, that was the true light, Jesus Christ, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Some translations actually translate it this way, which I think is probably the more accurate translation. That was the true light, which coming into the world gives light to every man. Guys, this doesn't mean that everyone is saved automatically because Jesus, God's light, came into the world. It means that God has given his truth to this world. And anyone who will receive it, well, it will be given, they will be given the life that is in Christ, the life of God. Here's the sad thing. 
Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That's not the sad part. John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 1, that his blood shed for us propitiated. The Greek word means to satisfy. Uh, was the propitiation for our sins, but not just ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you realize that at Calvary's cross, Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world, which means anyone and everyone in the world could be saved? God is not limited... I'm not a Calvinist. I, I don't believe God limits salvation to the elect. I think he invites every person to come to Jesus Christ because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, look, you, you would think that blind sinners doomed to hell would welcome the light that would rescue them from eternal darkness and destruction. You'd think that, wouldn't you? But sadly, that's not the case. Turn to John 3. And of course, the whole chapter, John 3, is absolutely incredible. Uh, you should know it well. I'll just have you, though, look at verse 17. Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent his Son to save people. He who believes in him is not condemned to hell, is the idea. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Guys, look, here's something you need to understand. It's not that the world at large doesn't know the gospel. I think most people in this country at least have heard the basic gospel. It's not that people don't know who God is or what he has said. It's not that they are... We live in a country where we have been blessed to have a Christian heritage. We have grown up uh, as, with Christianity as our main religion in this country for many years. It still is. It's not that the average person does not know the truth. Paul said in Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth in their desire to live unrighteously. They don't want to deal with the truth. They don't want to, they know it, they just don't want to deal with it. They suppress it so that they can live in sin, basically, is the idea. Jesus came to give light to every man and woman. I mean, Jesus made salvation available to all people. And it doesn't matter how bad you are. God's grace is bigger than no matter the biggest sin a man or woman can, can commit, God, well, his, you know, his grace is sufficient to save you no matter how badly a life you've lived. But again, most people, sadly, will not receive the light. The devil has really got them deceived. Either they think they have the light, I'm a Buddhist, or I'm this, or I'm whatever, uh, or they don't need the light, or whatever. Satan has got many people deceived. Now, as John continues to talk about the life that Jesus wants to give to the people of this world, he goes on to say in John 1, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Those are some very sad words. The Creator 
came to his creation, but his creation didn't know him. The Greek word is not just a mental, intellectual knowledge, okay? It's a Greek word that means the most intimate kind of knowledge, usually reserved for a husband and a wife. Uh, like with Joseph, it says that Joseph did not know Mary until after the birth of Jesus. He didn't have physical relations with her, where the two are made one, a very deep, personal, and intimate kind of a relationship. This is the relationship that Jesus came into to this world and the people of this world didn't have with him. I mean, it's not today even in our country. It's not that people don't know you know, he came, on, he came into the world, the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. It doesn't mean that unsaved people don't know who Jesus is. Again, we've grown up in a Christian country, and uh, many people have grown up in church and have gone to Awanas and other things. They know who Jesus is, but they don't know him intimately, deeply, the kind of knowledge that comes when you are born of the Spirit and connected to him, in that very unique spiritual way where you're one with him. Up until that point, you've got religion. Religion makes you feel like you're connected with God, but you're not. You're never going to be connected with God by lighting candles, praying rosaries, uh, burning incense, uh, keeping religious feast days, uh, helping out in the local soup kitchen. I mean, those will never bring you into a living, vital relationship with the Son of God. Only faith can do that, and that's you telling the Lord you, you want to receive him as your Lord and Savior. So he came to a world he created, but it did not know him in the sense of having union or communion with him. Verse 11, it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus would later say that salvation was of the Jews. Why? Because they were the chosen people of God the ones he had given his word to and through whom Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, was born. And yet when he presented himself to them as their Messiah, his own people, the Jews, did not receive him, but rather they rejected him as their king. So his own people rejected him for the most part. Um, so the world didn't know him. His own people didn't receive him. Verse 12 but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the Greek word means authority, to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You know, evangelists, in their zeal to see people saved, God love them, have sought to lessen the requirements of salvation to simple head knowledge. As long as you believe the facts about Christ, you're in. You're saved. I had a woman that had come with her family to this church for a number of years who, uh, last December, I think, um, they left the church, and she wrote me an email telling me why. They left the church because I was telling people that to go to heaven, you need to believe in Christ, but you need to also commit your life to him. And she thought I had perverted the gospel because it's just faith. It's just believing. Well, I wrote her back, and I tried to, you know, point some things out gently. Well, but the Bible says even the devil and his demons believe. They're not going to heaven. You can have head knowledge, you know. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, right, verse, verses 21 to 28, 
Many will come to me on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and work miracles and do all kinds of wonderful things in your name? I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So obviously they were churchgoers. They were orthodox in the sense they believed he was Lord. But again, you can believe a lot of right things about Christ and still go to hell because it's not just mental assent that saves a person. It's believing to the point of commitment. Commitment. And then demonstrating that commitment through obedience, which doesn't save you, the obedience, but it definitely is a fruit of salvation. Jesus said, my sheep, uh, he said, my sheep uh, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me, is the idea. They follow me. True faith is not mere mental assent to some facts about Christ. It's believing to the point of commitment. And that's what John is saying here. He, said, he makes it a point to say that a person must believe in and receive Jesus into their heart as their Lord and Savior if they're going to be saved. Again, John is not saying just believe. He's saying receive. It starts with believing. It starts with knowing the facts, the gospel. But at one point, you have to make Jesus your own. You have to say, Lord, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. It's a personal thing, isn't it? Now, John says something in verse 13 that you really ought to take to heart. You really ought to know this. He's talking about those who are born as children of God. They're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Becoming a born-again child of God is, first of all, not by blood. Not by blood. You don't become a Christian because your parents are Christians or because you were born a Catholic or a Lutheran or a Baptist or something else like that. It isn't something that's passed down to you through your bloodline. You say, well, of course, isn't that obvious? Not to the Jews it wasn't. Because in the Jewish mind, if you were a literal descendant of Abraham, they believed you were saved. All you needed to do was have the blood of Abraham in your veins and then be circumcised. They believed that added to it. And you were going to heaven. They even believed that a Jew could be an atheist and still go to heaven because Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell to pluck any unbelieving Jews from the line going in because they were descendants of Abraham. But as somebody has pointed out, you can have the blood of Abraham in your veins and not have the faith of Abraham in your heart. Ishmael was a flesh and blood descendant of Abraham. He was his son, yet he went to hell. Isaac was the son of promise because he believed. This is the idea, all right? So you're not going to be born of the Spirit, not going to become a child of God uh, through your bloodline, okay? Number two, it's not by the will of the flesh. Not by the will of the flesh. In other words, you don't become a Christian by sheer willpower, okay? By determining that, you know, you're going to start living like a Christian. There are some people in this country who believe that Christianity is a good thing. They're not saved yet. And in their minds, this is how they're going to go about being a Christian. I'm going to start living like a Christian. I'm going to do all the moral things that the Bible talks about because that's going to make me a Christian. And it's all about works, right? And I'm going to try real hard. I'm going to, you know, turn over a new leaf. I'm going to, you know, through sure willpower, uh, without being born again, is the idea, 
uh, I'm going to will myself into heaven, into being a Christian. Or they sometimes do it by punishing themselves rigorously, because that's how you get to heaven. You punish yourself. Every year at Easter time, the people in Mexico City whip themselves until their backs are bleeding, and then they crawl for miles on their hands and knees until their knees are reduced to raw meat, and they crawl on their hands and knees to a certain cathedral because in the hopes of doing all this, they're going to ingratiate themselves with God and earn their salvation. But as I read my Bible, Isaiah 53, God said, my son was beaten for your transgressions. My son was bruised for your iniquities. The whipping that belonged to you was laid on his back. By his stripes you are healed. It's the ultimate blasphemy to read something like that and go, well, move over, Jesus. I'm going to beat myself up because in so doing, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to earn a little bit of that salvation myself. It's not through the will of the flesh. And thirdly, it's not of the will of men that were saved. So no one becomes a Christian because a man like a priest or a group of men proclaim you a Christian because you fulfilled some religious duty or received some sacrament. John said you simply believe in and receive Jesus into your heart and God, listen, God gives you new life. It's all of God. All we do is reach out by faith and receive it and it becomes ours as a gift. Guys, look. I just want to end with this, okay? The coming of Jesus Christ into the world was the dawning of a new day for sinful man. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 78. We read, Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring, the day spring, a title for Jesus Christ, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, listen, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Sin had caused us to be at enmity with God and he with us. Through the blood of Christ, God's righteousness was satisfied. And when we receive Christ, we have peace with God. Turn to Matthew 4 quickly. Matthew 4, verse 16. Jesus quoted this at his coming. First coming. He said, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of and shadow of death, light, capital L, Jesus Christ, has dawned. He has come. Guys, Jesus came into the world as light. And then he imparted that light to people in the form of spiritual truth. Those who believed the gospel and received him, to them God said, let there be light, spiritually speaking. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit imparted new life to them, and they became a new creation. And also, we'll talk about this more next time, not only did they become a new creation, they themselves became the light of the world. Because now the life of God is in us. And so now we go into this dark 
broken world and we let our light shine by the way we live and by the light or the truth that we share. But something else happened. Something else happened when we got saved. God's light now in us caused us to see things clearly for the first time in our life. I was telling first service that when I got saved, not long after, in the providence and grace of God, I was uh, introduced to the ministry of Chuck Missler. And many of you know Chuck. He's a brilliant guy, uh, awesome Bible teacher. And uh, I got hooked up with a ministry who gave me a bunch of his tapes, and I began to devour them. And Chuck has kind of a science background, so he uses a lot of science uh, illustrations. And I remember him talking about a hologram. Now, a hologram is a 3D image um, that's been, you know, like a, 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 a photography, but it's, it's different, okay? It's a 3D image that's been um, basically uh, etched on a special uh, piece of holographic film, all right? And um, what happens is they have to use lasers to... Uh, light the image and then pass it through this this uh, um, film and um, once it's developed all right the image is on the film the thing about it is though that uh, if you take this holographic film out into the natural light and look at it you'll see no picture at all see no image at all all right uh, in fact it looks like a piece of overexposed film it doesn't make any sense. You have to illuminate it with the same light that created it, and then this, the picture becomes clear. We were created in the image of God. The Bible says even fallen man has the word of God, the commandments of God, uh, burned in their hearts. When you try to live your life, as we did, many of us, in the light, the natural light of this world, well, our life didn't really make a whole lot of sense. And I've had a lot of people say to me who are unbelievers, I don't understand what life's all about. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. And many people then just come to the conclusion, well, life's all about living, uh, partying, uh, having a good time, making money, and then dying. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? But that's where a lot of us live before we got saved. It wasn't until... We invited Christ to come into our lives, that the light of God, which created us, filled our hearts and our lives, and suddenly everything made sense. I saw it clearly for the first time. You experienced that, I'm sure, too. All of a sudden, life made sense. I knew why I was here, the purpose for which I had been created. It all makes sense because now the light who created me was in me, and it made all the difference in the world. This is what the psalmist, well, not the hologram, but this is what the psalmist is alluding to in Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Or we have the proper view of life because you've illuminated our hearts. And I believe we could apply that to John 1, 9, that Jesus is the true light that gives light to every man, every woman coming into the world because it's only when we see our lives in the light of God's truth that life makes sense. And we realize that we're not just made for this life 
for, for earth. We are eternal beings created in the image of God. People that God wants to live forever with him in his kingdom. That's why Jesus came. He has life in himself. He wanted to impart that life to anyone who wanted it. And he did that through his truth by sharing the gospel. We have a great blessing in that God created us. When he saved us, he filled it with us with his light. And now we have, are the light of the world. We go out into a world of darkness and share with others God's character, God's love, and God's truth. So we will continue next week, God willing, probably finish up the um, introduction and uh, move on from there. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light to our path, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And Father, we thank you that you've opened our eyes to your truth. Thank you, Lord, that as we gave our heart to Christ, you filled us with your light. And suddenly, Lord, life made sense. And we thank you that we are now living a life that honors you, a life that, well, is helping others to come to know you. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless this, these studies in your word. And uh, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.